Our text this morning comes from Psalm 21. Psalm 21. For the director of music, Psalm of David. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You come to greet him with rich blessings and place the crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Through the, through the victories you gave, his glory is great, and you have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold of all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their prosperity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes that cannot succeed, you make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. Well, let's talk about Psalm 21. Last week we did Psalm 20. This time we do Psalm 21. And um, in order to really teach Psalm 21, I need to do like a lightning speed review on Psalm 20. Kind of like when you watch, you know, like a serial style uh, Netflix drama or something, and they're like, last time on, you know, whatever the show is, and they give you like flashes of what happened before. So we need to do that because Psalm 21 and Psalm 20, maybe if you get really good ears and you happen to read Psalm 20 just before church, you might have picked up that there's some connection there. Um, but really, these two are supposed to go together. They're before and then after. They're part one and part two. So last week we did Psalm 20, so here's your quick lightning speed review. Psalm 20 is... Uh, uh, was written by King David to be a liturgical psalm, uh, something that the people used together in some kind of worship setting, but it had a specific purpose. When we looked at this, we looked at its historical, contextual meaning. Uh, King David wrote this in order to be used as a liturgy for the eve of battle. And we talked about how the scene was that the king and the people would gather all together just before the king would lead troops off to war 
and they would do Psalm 20. And there was a back and forth call and response. And the big idea was that God is going to, well, we hope, we pray, our faith is that God saves the king when he goes into battle. And by the way, the verse, um, Lord, give victory to the king in Psalm 20, verse 9, which in the King James is God save the king. That's how in like the UK they started saying God save the king because they got that from the King James Bible. Anyway, fun fact. You can use that in trivia later. Comes from Psalm 20. This was like a pre-battle liturgy. It, it was for an event that we, we, we might look back and say, oh, well, it's like some kind of pep rally. It's like some kind of before the battle, everybody gets pumped up. We looked at that in its historical context, but then we spent time to look at the psalm like we do with every psalm, Christologically. Jesus is the ultimate meaning of the whole Bible. So what, is it, what does it look like to look at Psalm 20 through Jesus' lens? And we saw that Psalm 20, looking forward to the king riding out to battle to save, you know, God will save the king in battle, which means God saves all the people. It gives us a picture of what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus went to the cross on Good Friday, uh, what we've come to call Good Friday. Uh, Jesus was going out to battle. And he cried out to God on the cross. And did God save him there? Yeah, he sure did. That's why we will celebrate Easter next week. So that's Psalm 20. Oh, but we don't want to just leave it there with looking at it historically and then seeing how it looks forward to Jesus. Like we've been learning, we want to read it redemptively. So we ask the question, what does it mean to take this historical meaning, this Christological meaning, what does it mean for me and my life? And we talked about how Psalm 20 gives us this picture of what it means to have union with Christ. For Christ to be the one who goes out to fight for you, to be your liberator, to be your king. Talked about how Jesus' death is our death. His life is our life. And so what started as a God save the king, when we're in Christ, turns into this almost like a blessing or a benediction or a meditation on how, well, like Paul says in Romans, how we're united with Christ in his death will certainly be united with him in resurrection. That was last time on Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. This time, Psalm 21, we have the part two. Psalm 21 was composed by King David, at least that's what it tells us, uh, to be the liturgical, be the words for the liturgical events that happens after the battle. So Psalm 21, it's like the pep rally before the battle, the king goes off, writes the war, comes back, people gather all together, and Psalm 21 is the liturgy for after the battle. If Psalm 20 is God saved the king, Psalm 21 is God gave the king victory. Yes! Woo! What a relief. That's what Psalm 20 is all about. It's a liturgy for after the battle. Now, it it does have kind of a call and response element to it. Let me show you in the text. Uh, if you could imagine, well, let's just sort of let's try to go there. 
first, and then we'll walk through the text. So I want to invite you to use your imaginations, something we don't often do in Presbyterian Church. Let's do it. Let's do it now. Uh, if you want to close your eyes, that's cool. Here we are out on some plane somewhere, maybe just outside the walls of the city. If you need help, you can imagine that scene in, oh, this is so cliche. I'm a preacher and I'm about to refer to the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, that scene in the movie, Return of the King, where they, where after everything ends, they're out there on the, on the grassy part of Minas Tirith. And they're going to crown Aragorn as the king, and they all gather around. That's the scene. So here we are, all gathered around the people of God. The king's in the middle. Now everybody is freshly showered and cleaned up, but it is after the battle, so some people might have bandages or things like that. And then somebody stands up, a liturgist or a Gandalf or whatever, stands up and, and, and leads the people and saying all together a prayer for the king. Verse 1. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. And then all the people join in, praying to God for the king. You have granted him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. Remember in Psalm 20, it prayed that God would grant King's heart's desire, and now they're saying, God, you did it. People continue to pray. Verse 3, you came to greet him with rich blessings. You placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. It's like That's like saying, Lord, he didn't get killed. It's awesome. Verse 5, through the victories you gave, his glory is great. And you bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you granted him unending blessings, made him glad with the joy in your presence. And then it gets real loud here. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. You imagine it's, and it's silent, it's quiet. Hearts are racing. This reverent moment, the king is standing there in silence as the people just prayed over him. And now the people turn their attention and look at the king. And now they stop talking to God about the king, and they start talking to the king himself. So now the people are addressing the king. They say, your hand will lay hold of all your enemies. And your right hand will seize your foes when you appear for battle. You will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. Like the people are saying, you just won that last battle, you're going to win the next one. And remember, they're talking to the king now. One of the ways we know that is now because now they're, it says the Lord, and it's in the third person. They're not talking to him anymore. They're talking about him. So still talking to the king. The Lord will swallow them up the enemies in his wrath and his fire will consume them and you O king will destroy their descendants from the earth their posterity from mankind though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes they cannot succeed you will make them turn their backs 
when you aim at them with drawn bow. This is, this is intense. This is like imprecatory type stuff. Saying, Cain, you're going to win again, and you are going to wipe the floor with your enemies. It's hyperbolic. It's big. It's graphic. And then now everybody all together, the, the leader and the king and all the people, they join in all of their voices. One last thing directed to God. It's like a benediction. Be exalted in your strength, O Lord. We will sing and praise your might. And then everybody <laughs> cheers. And then there's the streamers and the that's the scene. It's a Thanksgiving liturgy for the people of Israel. Now, where does this come from? Is this pep rally for pep rally's sake? Is the Bible teaching us that there's some sort of inherent value to hype? No. No, it's not. We're looking at this historically. This was written literally, actually for the people of God to use when the king comes back from battle for that time when they pray together, have the after battle uh, gala event. <laughs> the word gala is in my head because we talked about it. That's what this was written for. And yeah, it does include some hype. It includes hyperbolic language. It includes all this you won before and you're going to win again. Uh, sort of this militaristic enthusiasm. Why is that? Well, imagine yourself back there. In, in, in a war-like time with a warrior king who went out and, and, and did the thing in the name of the Lord. God empowered him. And now our community, our nation, our church is secure. We can continue to live in the land. Now, was this for every and any and every king that would come along and say that Yahweh is my God? No. This is a song of David. This is for the Davidic king. Not any king that would want to claim divine right to slaughter God's enemies. No. Only God's anointed Son of David, king. Why do we know that? Well, we, we know that because the language in the song, the language in the liturgy, when they're talking, they're praying for the king and talking to the king, the language reflects the language of the Davidic covenant. We've talked about this several times as we've worked through the Psalms. The Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to King David the king that he established, that David's throne would last forever. Do you remember that Israel had a king before David? And God did put that guy into office. But that king, Saul, was not God's forever king. He was not the people's forever king. He was temporary. But when David took the throne, the king that God picked out as a shepherd boy, the king that God anointed through prophet Samuel, the king that God raised up, the king that united all the tribes, that kicked out Israel's enemies, that finally took the land, that, that, that 
and the campaigns that started back with Joshua, that king, when he had won all of his battles and Israel was secure and the kingdom was established and Saul was finally gone, he, do you remember the story? He came to God and he said, I, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And God said, you're not going to be the one that builds my house because uh, you're not my house building king. You're my warrior king. But you need to know that uh, I established your kingdom and your kingdom will last forever. And don't worry, your son will be the one that builds my house. And I say that because this throne I've established for you is an eternal throne. Remember that story? In fact, let me just do this. It's worth reading you excerpts from 2 Samuel 7 when God makes the promise to King David that his kingship is special, is different. It said, let me just read this. Uh, God tells the prophet Nathan to go to David and say this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture tending the flock. I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've been the one that cut off the enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a, a place for my people Israel. I will plant them. They'll have a home and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish your house. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. The Lord goes on to say, I will be his father. He will be my son. And he ends with, your house and your kingdom, God speaking to David, will endure forever before me. And your throne will be established forever. That's what God said to King David. So, when the people get together, and they say, the king rejoices in your strength, Lord. But they're remembering something. They're remembering that God told David, by the way, these victories that you won, I did it. When the people get together and they say to, to God that, that God uh, greeted the king with rich blessings and placed the crown on his head. They're remembering back to God telling David, by the way, I'm the one that established your throne. When they pray uh, through the victories, you gave his glory, his great, you bestowed on him splendor and majesty. When they pray, uh, he asked you for life and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. They're remembering this covenant. So then when the people turn to King David, or David's son, whoever the Davidic king was, that this was written for, for the after battle, liturgy, banquet, party time. And, and then they go on and they say, uh, your hand 
will lay a hold of your enemies and seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn your enemies up as in a blazing furnace, and the Lord will swallow them in his wrath. Um, they're not just, they're not trash talking. Uh, they're recalling that God's promise was that he would establish his people forever by establishing their king, which meant to be for God and to be with God was to be for David and his descendants and with David. To be against David was to be against God. So those who find themselves outside and against the kingdom, they don't get to take a hold of the kingdom lessons. In fact, they're liable to the king's wrath. So these people are praying back and speaking back to the king what they know to be true about their history, about their theology, about their Bible. They're taking a hold of God's promises for the nation that are attached to this anointed person that they're looking at who had just won this victory, and next time the battle comes around, is going to go out to fight it again. They're placing their identity in him. And they know that he has placed his identity in them. They are one. It's us and the king. He fights for us, and he fights for God. So if we're with anybody, we're with him. That's the idea. Now that's looking at the psalm historically, what it meant in history. But it's in the Bible, Psalm of David. We've learned 21 psalms in. We've learned that uh, every psalm is ultimately about Jesus, especially the Davidic ones. We've talked all about how Jesus is David's great son. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Jesus is the great son of David that takes the throne and holds it forever. So what does it mean to go back and look at the psalm again, but realizing that Jesus is the king? That it's a psalm written uh, to look forward to the greatest king who would ever live, the great son of David. Well, let's take a moment and reflect on that. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord, and how great is his joy in the victories you give. We read earlier the story of Luke's account of what we call Palm Sunday, what we remember today in the church calendar. And at least in my Bible, um, which is a new international version Bible, uh, the Bible editors who made this, the little bold print title for the name of this little section. Um, by the way, I don't know if you know that, but the, the bold print little titles above the text are not from the Bible. They're from like the NIV Translating Committee or whatever to, to, to help you find your way through. That passage in my Bible is called, Jesus Comes to Jerusalem as King. Uh, maybe in some Bibles it's, it's labeled the triumphal entry. Or something like that. Or maybe something about Palm Sunday. 
I think to to go back and, and look at Psalm 21 Christologically, I, I don't think we can do it without going to um, the Palm Sunday passage, in our case, Luke 19, and, and think about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, on a baby, you know, juvenile donkey, and riding in as the king. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, the reason that the, the people who saw him, his disciples and the bystanders, the, the reason that they knew what to do, to, to run out into the street and put their coats on the road, like red carpet, so that Jesus' donkey wouldn't have to step on the dirt, ride over the coats. And it says in the Gospel of Mark, excuse me, I have a mustache here. <laughs> Gospel of Mark that they that they got branches from the palm trees and they, they waved them, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. The reason people knew what to do is, is Jesus is in, enacting what we could call a kind of cultural liturgy. Jesus is doing something that in their time and place would have signaled uh, a statement being made. Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem. In fact, he walked into Jerusalem many times. But to come into Jerusalem on, on the back of, of what well, normally it would be a horse, with his disciples laying coats on the road, this is signaling revolution. This is what maybe, uh, you know, if, if the, the Roman emperor would have visited Jerusalem, he, he would have come in like this. It would have been much more grand. Or when a governor or somebody like that there's historical records of other people who claim to be the Messiah, the liberator of the Jews. They would do this. They would orchestrate some kind of event. It would be like a protest almost, or, or some kind of um, uh, almost like a, a like a political performance piece where they would go outside of the city. They would get all ready. Their people would run in and they would cry out, Hosanna! Hail to the king, and they would ride in on a horse. It was a way of saying, I'm here to overthrow the government. Now, when Jesus came in, it's significant that he came in on not just a donkey. If you don't know, donkeys make terrible horses, but the cult of a donkey. It's the weakest way he could have come in and still made that social, political, revolutionary statement. And, and he did that on, on purpose. Why? Well, I, because of Psalm 21. Because Jesus was not coming in all loaded with his own strength, although he very well could have. Isn't he the Son of God? No, he, he came in showing that he is taking this throne not by way of his own uh, might, strategy, prowess, cowboy diplomacy, uh, private army, whatever you want to call it. No, he, he is coming in with all he has to offer is the strength of God who anointed him as the forever king. So if anybody does any fighting, 
It's not going to be Jesus wielding a sword and saying, I'm the man, submit to me. No, it's Jesus picking up a cross, climbing the hill, being raised up, and drawing all people to himself, wearing a crown. Do you see it? So when he wins the victory, there is no question who actually did the fighting. See, the David thing that after battle, liturgical event, where they prayed uh, that the king's strength was actually from God and trusting in God's love. And the king's victory is actually God's victory. And the king's enemies are actually God's enemies. All that is just a type. It's to help us wrap our heads around the idea that the king, if, if we're the people of God, we're out there on the, on the plane during this event, and there's the king. It's to wrap our heads around the idea that we look at the king and we say, he is us. And we know the king looks at us and he says, I am them. And altogether we look at God and we say, all we have is your strength. You give the victory. You fought the battle. You did everything. So we're going to throw ourselves on your love. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. And we will trust that going forward, every single victory, every single enemy defeated is by your hand and because of you. Psalm 21 gives us that idea in this Hebrew monarchy historical, political context. So that when we look at Jesus coming in, in a Second Temple Jewish context, which is different, under occupied Rome, coming in on the back of a donkey, we could say, Psalm 21, here comes the king. He's going to win the victory. Wait. He doesn't look as strong. He doesn't... Hmm. Oh, yeah. The victory doesn't come from his strength. It comes from God's strength. Oh, yeah. He's us. He's weak because we're weak. Oh, yeah. He looks at us and he says, I'm them. He rides in to welcome. Oh, yeah. Those who continue to oppose him left. Outside, the Pharisees said, tell your disciples to keep quiet. Jesus says, if only you knew, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace. And he goes on to describe how the religious system that they cling to how the Jerusalem that they loved, how the religious establishment they're clinging to, how all of these outward symbols and images of religious strength and political strength and establishment all wrapped up in the temple and in the city will fall. And if they don't join themselves with the humble king, they're left under the fires that are taking down the old system. 
So that's what Psalm 21 looks like when we read it Christologically. We see that Jesus is the king. Like David in the fact that he's God's man and he's our man. But unlike David in the fact that his, well, he carries my sword and his war horse is terrible. So, okay, that's beautiful. What does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me, Charlie Shaw? What does that mean for us, Oak Presbyterian Church? What does that mean for the church in Portland? What does that mean for Christians in the world? We can look we look at the psalm, considering the history, considering it all points to Jesus, we can see its place in the redemptive movement of Scripture. It's not just this historic liturgy for the day after battle. It's not just this prophetic song about King Jesus. It, it, it becomes like a like a prayer for us today. It becomes a meditation of hope. I love the idea in this psalm, the fact that the king went out to battle, he was victorious, he came back, we're celebrating. But the whole second half of the song is pointing to the fact that fighting will continue. There will continue to be enemies. It's okay, God's going to swallow them up. But the war might be over, even though battles still rage. And so the king, I mean, so the people pray that God would be exalted in his strength. The people cling to God's promises. And I think that for us, reading this today is exactly that. It becomes a prayer and a meditation of hope. Let me just put it this way. Um, our world is super messed up. We prayed about gun violence earlier. It's real bad. Talk about drug and addiction problems in our city. And talk about how our city needs Jesus, needs the King. Here we are just trying to do church, Hope Presbyterian. We, we think we're pretty good at it. We got good theology. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we have we got our theology right, we, we, our association, we've we got a good denomination, of, you know, we, we set things up, we're meeting in a nice place, 10 o'clock, 10.30 on Sunday morning, we worked really hard for that, we, we got it all together. But when we look around each week, oh, we're so small, and we're so weak. And we, we wonder, what difference can we make? How long can this last? How long can we continue to go about doing this this way in this city? 
How long do we go out with our Christian friends for lunch and our meals get interrupted by people from the street coming up and asking us for money? We're supposed to have good Christian fellowship at the tables and people keep interrupting us. Who knows what they're going to do with the money? That kind of stuff. Isn't it hard to be the people of God in a broken world? Isn't it hard to come in here and smile and do church and worship on Sundays when you don't want anyone to know what happened in the car? The family car ride way here. Isn't it so hard to confess our sins together using these, you know, liturgical language and that we do the rest of it silently? Because if the person next to you knew about the sins you were confessing, they wouldn't want to sit next to you at church anymore. Folks, we are incredibly weak. And outwardly, this religious thing that we're doing, just like the outward religious thing Jerusalem was doing, has lost its cultural credibility. This, this, doesn't, this isn't going to last just because we're doing it. We need to place our hope in the King. Not in our own might, not in our own judgment, not in whatever your politics are, not in whatever your church politics are, not whatever you think that is getting right theology so that God blesses us the right way because we're the right kind of reformed or whatever. No, we need to place our hope in the King. And when we do that, we need to recognize that he, like us, has been weak. And when he won the victory, it wasn't on a war horse. Coming in on a donkey and going to the cross. And he won. He won. Now, I know in liturgical settings, calling cars were pretty liturgical. You're not supposed to talk about resurrection until Easter gets here. We need to know the victory that he went to go get, he won. Battles rage, and they will rage all around us, but the war is over. So what does it mean to live as the people of God in a broken, hostile world, in a limping, alone church? It means that we locate our identity, not here in us, but in him, knowing that he locates his identity. We locate our identity in him, knowing that he has located his identity in us. And God looks and he says, those are my people. And our strength comes from him. I wonder if that's the way that you think about your life as a Christian in Portland. I wonder if that's the way that you think about your church. And I wonder if you experience the peace and assurance that comes from those truths. Now, I'm over time, but I want to close by reading you a short story that I think will help capture, again, our imaginations for the truth of this song. It'll take about two minutes. Consider this. I think this will help drive the idea home where we are together. 
Uh, during World War II, there was a Scottish Presbyterian minister named Murdo MacDonald. He served as a chaplain um, in the British Army, a, a, a paratrooper unit. They called him Padre Mac, which is funny because you're not supposed to call a Presbyterian minister's father Padre, but it was there was a war, who knew, whatever. Padre Mac, he's a paratrooping chaplain. Uh, in fact, the movie The Great Escape was based on one of his experiences. He was caught, captured, and escaped several times, apparently. Um, but near the end of the war, he was caught behind German lines and taken prisoner, and he was put in a, in a concentration camp, him and another Scottish Presbyterian chaplain. And they were separated. Um, there was a British, there's a side of the camp for British soldier prisoners, British POWs, and there was a side of the camp for American POWs. There was a fence in the middle. And uh, the two armies were not allowed to communicate with each other. And they put uh, Padre Mac, Murdoch, McDonald, uh, with the Americans, and they put the other chaplain with the, with the, uh, with the British troops. So there they were in prison, concentration camp in Germany. The war is going on. Now, unknown to the guards, the Americans on their side, they had a homemade wireless radio hidden uh, in their camp. And Bordeaux, Padre Mac, used uh, the, the Germans used to let him and the other chaplain for a few minutes each day talk through the fence about chaplain matters. And Padre Mac, Murdo McDonald, used that opportunity um, to get news to the British side of the camp. And they would, he would speak in Scots Gaelic, because the other chaplains Scots. And the, the Germans couldn't understand. One day, the Americans received news on the radio that the German high command had surrendered and the war was over. But communication was so bad in where they were in Germany that the German guards at the camp had yet to find out. So McDonald, later he wrote this. I took the news to the fence that day and I gave it to my friend. And that day I stood at the fence while my friend went to the British barracks and I waited for what I knew what would happen. And there was a thunderous roar of celebration from the British barracks. And the most amazing thing happened. For three days, prisoners of war walked around the camp singing and shouting. We were gloriously happy. We didn't complain about the food. We waved at the dogs and the guards, and none of the guards knew what was happening. Nobody could explain it. Every prisoner of war was rejoicing and celebrating. And on the morning of the fourth day, we prisoners woke up and realized that it was different. No guards. Apparently in the night they heard the news and slipped out into the forest. They left the gates closed but unlocked. On the morning of the fourth day, we walked out of the prison as freed men. Mordo went on to say, we were set free four days before by the news that the war was over. Folks, the message of Psalm 21, when we see Jesus as our king, puts us in a situation like that. The battles rage around us, 
It's still hard. But the news is that the war is over. Jesus has won the victory. So our singing, our shouting, our pep is not so we can pump, get pumped up and go out and try to win some cultural thing. Not so we can get all pumped up and try to be the best and the baddest church in town. No. Let our rejoicing only come from the fact that our king, our man and God's man, he won the battle for us. We've heard the news. And that news is the brain. Let's bring it.